Matthew chapter 25. Um, if you have a Bible, but you um, thought it was quicker for you to open your Bible app this morning, I want to encourage you to open your Bible. Um, there are some uh, important words and some important um, things that you might want to underline or make note of in your Bible today. And um, some Bibles have this little space on the side for notes. Um, it's going to be helpful for us, I think, in understanding and remembering some important things from our text today. So if you have a Bible, um, go ahead and open that up. Uh, Matthew chapter 25, we're going to finish the chapter today. Uh, we'll read um, the text all the way through, and then we'll jump right in. Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 31. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he'll separate them one from another as the shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right, and he'll put his goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, come inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then these righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I was naked, you didn't clothe me, sick, and in prison, and you didn't visit me. And then they themselves will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And he'll answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord, and we need the grace of the Lord to understand and apply it. So let's pray now, church. Father in heaven, we praise you, and God, we recognize your holiness. We exalt your holy name. We pray, God, for your kingdom to come here today as we open your word. Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes and open our hearts. Give us understanding. Pray for maturity, God, that we wouldn't just sit and listen, but we would uh, grow and apply your word into our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, I can't imagine what it was like in the first century for the Jews that were following Jesus to hear that. <laughs> it must have been just radical to follow Jesus anyway, but here's Jesus teaching and saying things that no one has ever taught before. No one has ever explained and, and, and talked about the kingdom of heaven in this way. And Jesus taught with such knowledge and such authority and such certainty, uh, it, it must have been mind-blowing for them. They had witnessed Jesus speaking to demons, and they watched demons flee, just totally like fleeing from Jesus. He had real authority. 
A Jesus attracted implausibly broken people. He had broken followers. Uh, The Bible tells us it was the lowest people in society that found hope in Jesus. And on top of all of that, on top of the incredible things that they witnessed in his ministry, as we've been learning over the last few weeks, we've we've seen Jesus stand in the temple toe-to-toe with the most powerful men in Israel, these religious leaders, and and he silences them in conversation with them. Mind-blowing. Now, at this point in his life, Jesus has been followed by a faithful group of men for three years now. And we know, because we have the full revelation from God in Scripture, we know that Jesus is only now three days away from the cross. So he's nearing, very nearing the end of his three-year ministry, three days from the cross. Jesus has been fixed on getting to Jerusalem, and he's been fixed on the inevitability of the cross, the inevitability of the horrors of the cross even. But as Jesus has been teaching us about the cross over these last many months, as we've been studying uh, through the last several chapters in the book of Matthew, we've seen that his heart is, is to look beyond the cross, looking through the horrors of the cross. But he has this long view, and he's, he describes the wonders of the other side of the cross. When Jesus teaches about the cross, he, he teaches eternal truths in light of this impending reality. This long view of the cross is very evident in the first verse of our chapter today, verse 31, he says this, looking at the cross now, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. It's a beautiful picture that Jesus, now the tone of his teaching, it seems to be changing just a little bit, changing according to there's three days left, He's got three days to to instruct and prepare his disciples for what happens after the cross. And so he's, he's teaching and his tone changes a little bit. He wants to equip his disciples to wait and to wait expectantly for his return. And so Jesus has been instructing them about how to live, how to wait, and he's giving them these final instructions. And so um, he says this in verse 31, he says, when the son of man comes in his glory, and the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Now, the first thing to notice there is Jesus doesn't say, if the Son of Man comes. He's like, if I make it, guys, okay? It's not like a human endeavor. Like, if I make it through this crazy thing I'm about to do, that's not what the text says. It says, when. This, there's an actual day. There's a, an actual day when Jesus is coming back. He's returning, and it's going to happen suddenly, and it's going to happen physically. Jesus is returning. He's going to return to the earth that he spoke into creation, the Son of God returning to redeem the creation of God. And Jesus is returning to consummate and reunite heaven and earth once and for all. And so Jesus is actually coming back, and it's going to be amazing, right? We we see this in other parts of Scripture, Jesus coming back in glory, um, it, this is, this is uh, explicitly shown in Revelation chapter 19. It says this about Jesus' return. It says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on the horse is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, okay? That's just another word for crowns. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. Don't even know what that means. Verse 13, it says he, he's clothed with a robe that's dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. 
And the armies which are in heaven, they're clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads on the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, we see this, this crazy, beautiful picture of Jesus coming back in power and authority and glory. Heaven will be torn open. The Son of Man arriving, wearing a robe dipped in blood, riding on a horse, right? Leg tattoo, right? Every Christian, that, you know, new Christian in the world that gets a little Christian tattoo is like, looks to this verse, but Jesus had this tattoo on his leg. I don't know what that means, but it's incredible. It's on his robe. It's on his leg. He's on a horse. It's coming from the sky. He has a sword instead of a tongue. Jesus will come, and on that day, nobody is going to question his authority. He comes, and he sits on his glorious throne, and he judges the whole world in his righteousness. Look at the next verse in our passage today, verse 32. It says, all the nations will gather before him. And he'll separate them one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And so what he's saying is everybody is going to appear before him. It's not like jury duty, right, where just a small percentage actually show up. It's like everybody, everybody appears before the judge. And the king then separates people as a shepherd separates his cattle, right? Sheep from the goats. He looks at, I know which ones are mine. I, I know which ones are sheep, and I know which ones are goats. See, Jesus is alluding to the day that's prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 34, where the shepherd goes out and rescues his sheep. Then the king puts the sheep on the right, and we, we know historically that the right hand of the king is a place of authority. The king symbolically ruled with his right hand. And so putting the sheep on the right is placing the sheep in a place to rule with him. And it says he places the goats on the left. And so this is the setup, right? We get this. The, the king separates his cattle. Got it. So now Jesus' story, this is where it kind of gets a little tough for us to hear. I'll be honest with you. Jesus starts saying things that we really don't want to hear. Now, a clear, plain, straightforward reading of this text of these next few verses is, is some tough stuff if you've ever sat with this and really, and really meditated on what it says. And I wish there was a way, there's a part of me, I should say, that wishes that there's a way to explain this passage so it doesn't actually mean what it clearly says. Uh, but I can't do that. Jesus is explicitly clear and straightforward. And what he is saying is that we are to love the least of these. The least. Okay, not, not your second favorite person, right? Not the guy that we like, but we just don't get to see all that often. Jesus is referring to people who are so complicated and so difficult to love that nobody loves them. We're to love the least. And these words of Jesus can cause some real fear in our hearts, right? Because loving the least requires complete self-abandonment. Nobody wants to go love the least in and of themselves. This isn't something that, that we ever innately just want to go and do. It's not fun to love the least at all. It's never convenient to love the least. And so Jesus uses this strong language to communicate that there's supposed to be a weightiness here, that, that there really is something that separates the kingdom-minded sheep from the goats, and, and he creates this tension, and I believe this tension is a good thing 
Uh, it's good for us to sit in the tension of the text today. And if we allow ourselves to sit, I believe we're going we're gonna to discover something true about ourselves and something true about God. And so, look, we're going to go back here to, uh, now to verse 35. It says, then the king will say to those on his right, okay, these are the sheep. He says, come, you who are blessed by my father, come inherit the kingdom that was prepared from the foundation of the world. See, Jesus is setting the foundation for the whole rest of the parable here. He's laying a foundation of grace. Before he starts talking about what these sheep had done, he invites them in. You see the the order of things here? The invitation in is first. But this is an uncomfortable grace. Uh, Like any intimate relationship, there's a measure of awkwardness initially. Um, Perhaps I'm just relationally not as mature as as many of you are, but this tension, this this, uh, relationship is uh, uncomfortable for me. It's uncomfortable to me that a holy God would want to pursue me that a holy God would want to know me, that a holy God would want to indwell me, right? Because I know me. I know, I, I barely want to indwell myself much of the time. It's like, wait, you want, you want to know me? You want to dwell within me? See, I know my deep failures and weaknesses. I know the stains and the blemishes and the brokenness inside. And in light of what I know about myself, it's uncomfortable for me to think that God would want to be near me. And it's a crazy invitation because God literally had to sacrifice his own son in order to even extend that invitation for me to draw near. And that's what Jesus is getting at in in this parable today. God chose me. And then he tends to all my failures. He tends to my brokenness. And he heals me. And then he intimately dwells within me. This is an uncomfortable grace. It requires our willingness to let God move in and deal with our stuff. It requires a willingness to let God fix us. But what's important is to see that this is an act of grace. This isn't a reward for anything that we've done. We must receive it as a gift. And so this text begins with the glory of Jesus, right? Christ coming as a glorious king. We see that in the first verse. And then the next verse, we see the Father giving the kingdom to those that he would call blessed. That's what this passage today is. It is God seeking and saving lost people and God empowering and commissioning these lost people who've been made brand new, commissioning them to do kingdom work. You, you see kind of the, the flow of the passage here. Now, a good example of this, a good explanation, kind of living example of this is found in the Apostle Paul. I believe Paul really sat in this reality, kind of really sat in this tension between uh, this, this gift of grace and this call and commission to good works. And um, we, we see a beautiful picture of this in Ephesians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul says this. He says, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, not that of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not the result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for us so that we could walk in them. Good works that were prepared ahead of time for us to walk in them. See, that word workmanship, he says we're God's workmanship. The, the Greek word of workmanship there is poema. It's, it's a word for poem. You could translate that like we're God's poetry, We're this this beautifully crafted, intentional uh, thing that God has created that that is good and right. We're God's poem. 
And so in our passage today, it says, the king says, come you who are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to God's grace. And so we start with a foundation of grace. And now we're going to jump into the details of the rest of the text. And like Paul, uh, uh, we need to sit in that tension like the apostle Paul did. Um, And so before we jump into these things that Jesus has called us to, um, I want to highlight two possible errors. And, and the, this historically, these are big errors that are made when people interpret this text and relating to the role of works in our life as Christians. So this, this is important. We need to avoid these things. Error number one is that our salvation depends on what we do. We, we don't want to read this text and come to the conclusion that our salvation depends on what we do. See, some take this passage to mean that ultimately, salvation is all about what we do. And some people would say, yeah, God's grace is great and it's free and wonderful, but God is really only going to save those who straighten up, clean up their act, and get it all together, right? They're like, get on God's program and then you'll be saved. See, no, that is not what this text is saying. Verse 34, right, okay, so for those of you that actually have a hard copy of the Bible, underline that or, or make a mark in it, whatever you allow yourself to do in your Bible. But that, those are like guardrails that keep us from saying that, yeah, it is our works that save us. Verse 34 is guardrails from concluding that salvation comes by our own efforts, right? That, that's the invitation of the Father saying, come, come and inherit this. The invitation of the kingdom is not predicated on our good deeds. That would be the first error. The second error that we can fall into is that grace means that how we live doesn't matter. It's the opposite of the first error. And others have taken this text to mean that it doesn't really matter what we do. We, and we have to be very careful not to fall into thinking that we can just check a box with a prayer, right? Give our life to Jesus or whatever. And, and then we're saved. And because works don't matter, it doesn't matter how we live the rest of our life. So we can't intellectualize this passage. The things that we do are clearly of eternal significance. Jesus makes way too strong a point throughout his entire life's ministry, and especially in our text today. You'd have to perform uh, contortions to come to the conclusion that what you do doesn't matter. If you're a sheep, if you're a kingdom sheep, if you've been brought into the kingdom by the shepherd, you know you're a good shepherd, you will do what all sheep do, Right? Sheep follow their shepherd. Kingdom sheep follow their shepherd. Kingdom sheep do kingdom things. And so this is a weighty passage, but there's some real beauty in here as well. Because Jesus presents information to these two groups, right? He talks to the sheep and he talks to the goats. And this, if you've ever studied the wording of this passage, it's beautiful. There's a, there's a real balance here. He addresses one group. He addresses the other group. The first group responds. The second group responds. And then there's this exhortation from the king to both groups. It's this balanced text that we have. And so we're going to compare the king's address to each group. So the king first speaks to the sheep, those that he's placed on the right. And he says these words. This is verse 34. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father. Come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, you clothed me, sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now we're going to skip down a few verses to see how the king addresses the goats, those that he placed on the left. Verse 41, he says this, 
Then he will also say to those on his left, he says, depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. He's talking about hell, the reality of hell. Jesus is sending this group of of creatures to hell. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You didn't invite me in. I was naked. You didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Now, what he's doing is he's listing off these kingdom activities as a sheep following his master. And for when our, our master, our shepherd, is Jesus. And so as we follow our shepherd, we're followed, we follow him into these kingdom activities. Jesus is saying, this is what I'm all about. This is like what I do. This is what I did when I was alive. This is what I've given you to do. And so we're kind of identified as sheep. He's able to look and say, that's a sheep right there because he's following his shepherd. There's some serious tension in this today. Jesus' wording at this point seems like his judgment is based on whether or not the flock does this stuff. That's heavy. Like, they either did these things or they didn't. And we're going to get to a more complete explanation of these words in a few minutes. But first, let's consider this kingdom work to which Jesus is referring. Just just let's look at the work itself first, and then we'll talk about uh, Jesus' wording here. First of all, uh, we can say three things about this kingdom work. First of all, I would say that we have a real responsibility to be about kingdom things. This is important to Jesus to feed the hungry, to refresh the thirsty, to welcome the stranger, to clothe the naked, to care for the sick, to visit the incarcerated. Jesus makes it very clear that these are things are important and we ought to give them attention. That's the first thing, just an obvious outright observation on this text. Another thing that's kind of like the same way, very obvious, is that these are good and true kingdom things. They're not simple Uh, like, they're not social problems that we need to solve. These are kingdom activities that every sheep in the kingdom is called into. And these problems have been around since Adam and Eve, since sin entered the world. And since that time, uh, we try over and over again to politicize these things or to monetize these issues, and we tend to want to distance ourselves from them so that we can focus on other things, right? We want our government to solve these problems or churches to solve these problems or we want our youth to solve these problems or our missionary. Let's send missionaries to go solve those problems so that we can do other things, right? It's good for us, I think, to remember that Jesus specifically mentions and emphasizes these things, these very low things, right? And we all need to, we, we all long and, and want to see a world where the, the, there's no hunger or thirst or there's no one struggling with, with clothing or anything like that. And Jesus is saying that we should be about bringing the kingdom of heaven to the least of these. It's good for us, it's good for the kingdom for us to see these things as beautiful, as worthy, as worthwhile, right? It's not less than something else. Jesus is elevating acts of service. And he's, ed- he's saying this is edifying good kingdom work. These are acts of worship as much as they're acts of benevolence. And so, the third thing we can see about this is that in some way, every one of these acts of benevolence is an act of fidelity to Jesus. As the sheep follows the shepherd, he glorifies the shepherd in, in how he walks. The shepherd leads him into good things. The shepherd leads him into acts of worship. And we respond with hearts of worship. 
And that leads us to the next part of this message. We see the sheep responding to the shepherd, and then we see the goats responding to the shepherd. They're both surprised. There's two big surprises in this passage. Both are surprised. It says in verse 37 that the sheep, the righteous, answer him. And they say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. See, the sheep are surprised here that the king is saying these things. They're like, when did we do that? We didn't see you starving. We didn't see you thirsty. There's a real surprise there. But as I mentioned a minute ago, sheep are identified by who they follow. And so since I'm a kingdom resident, I do kingdom things. As a follower of Jesus, that's who I am. A sheep can't help but to follow their shepherd. The sheep never uh, look to these good deeds that they did for their salvation, right? They didn't look to these good deeds that they did as their identity. They just followed Jesus and did them. It's like complimenting a fish for breathing underwater, right? They don't know that being able to breathe underwater is incredible. They don't, they don't even think about it. They don't care. See, fish breathe underwater because they're fish, right? I mean, for you scientists out there, your skin is crawling right now. But that's, that's true, right? From my perspective, that's true. <laughs> the same way kingdom sheep serve the least among us because that's who we are and that's what we do, Right? We're concerned for the least of these. We serve from a place of thankful humility. We see this um, echoed all throughout Scripture. And perhaps one of the more beautiful places in Psalm 51. It says, speaking to the Lord, the psalmist says, For you don't delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. He's saying, you're not really pleased by what I do. Look at verse 17. This is what the Lord is pleased with. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, with that in mind, we're going to contrast the sheep's response now with with the goat's surprise here. Verse 44, it says, then they themselves will also answer, referring to those on the king's left, and they say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And when did we not take care of you? And then he'll answer to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. See, the goats are surprised by the same exact thing that surprised the sheep. But they're surprised for a totally different reason. They're surprised by the same thing, but for the, for the opposite wrong reason. They ask, wait, what? When did we see you suffering like that? But what they're communicating in their reaction, in their surprises, they're communicating that they are willing to bless the king, but they're willing to bless the king for a reward. Also, they're communicating, if you read between the lines, they're communicating an unwillingness to bless others who offer no hope of reward. See, their blessing comes with a hope of reward. They're saying, if I would have known it was you that was thirsty, if I would have known that it was you that I was serving, if I would have known that that's what's required to have your approval, right? If I would have known that that's what I need to do in order to be saved, in order to enter heaven, I would have done it. See, the goats are only willing to obey when there is a clear benefit of reward. 
That's what identifies a goat. When, when Jesus is, when the king is looking at his cattle and he's separating the sheep from the goat, the goats are those who are willing to obey when there is only a clear benefit of reward. The sheep, the kingdom sheep obey because their heart has been changed by Jesus. And so God looks to the heart in this great day of separation. He's going to be looking to the heart. He's not going to be looking at necessarily at what you've done. He's going to look at your heart, who you are, who's been leading you. Have you been doing these things because you're following the shepherd? Both are surprised to learn that the king is served by their service to the least, but they're surprised for different reasons. Both the sheep and the goats reveal the same truth about the value of our actions. First of all, our actions over time will always reveal our heart or betray our heart. Over time, your actions are going to tell the people around you a lot about you. Second, our actions over time will show what we really truly believe right? That's super humbling. I got five kids, man. My kids know what I believe based on how I act. The third thing is our true heart and beliefs are evident by our actions. Like people I work with, they know what I believe. They, They know what my heart is like. See, if you're hearing this today and you're feeling a sense of dread Right? If you're feeling ashamed or condemned, know that the solution today is not to just grit your teeth and go jump into some ministry. Oh, man, I haven't done enough for the Lord. I'm going to jump right in. See, know that the solution isn't to do that. You can't just commit to trying harder to save the world. There's too much need in the world. We cannot see salvation come to earth unless we ourselves have been saved. We can't hope to see good things happen in the world around us until good things have have happened inside of us. See, these wonderful acts of benevolence, they flow from a heart that has first been saved by the king. And so the right response to this passage today is not to try harder. The right response is to receive a new heart. On that day of judgment is a heart that is being judged. Listen to God's promises regarding his plan to empower obedient people, okay? It's all about the heart. Listen to this in Ezekiel chapter 36. He says, moreover, I will give you a new heart. Someone say amen, right? Isn't that a beautiful promise? I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What he's saying is I'm going to give you a heart that's soft and supple, that bends itself and forms itself to my will. I'm going to get rid of that hard, stony heart that repels truth and give you a soft heart. Verse 27, he says, I will put my spirit within you. Someone say amen. God puts his spirit in us. Listen to the wording here. If you guys have your Bible, another one, just underline. I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. How do you walk in God's statutes? God puts his spirit in us and he causes us to walk. He gives us the strength. He gives us the ability. He gives us the desire and the unction. There's God doing it. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. He gives us that heart of caution where we become attentive and we long and want to respond and obey and walk with. Why? Because of this beautiful relationship 
that's birthed out of the grace of, and love of the Father. See, for the goats among us today, this call to ministry is not for you. You need a new heart. For the kingdom sheep among us today, yeah, maybe we need to resurrender our hearts to God. Maybe we're like the sheep that's kind of gone off and, you know, we're starting to get out into the shrub somewhere. We've, we've strayed from the flock and strayed from the shepherd. See, here's the deal. The kingdom of heaven is here, right? Jesus has done what God required of him so that we might live with God. The Holy Spirit has been given to us who are in Christ. We, therefore, we get to go and bring life and hope and grace to the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger and the naked and the sick and the incarcerated. These are all the works of the kingdom. Other places in the New Testament, we see we're supposed to tend to the needs of the widows. We're supposed to meet the orphans in their distress. We're supposed to go out and find distressed kids without parents and meet them in that and deal with it. Intercede for them, right? This this is kingdom work. That we're to be about these kingdom things. It's the heart of God and the work of God to bring mercy and justice to the least of these. And the kingdom of heaven is here now, right? Heaven's not just some place where we're going to be floating around on clouds playing harps in the future, right? That's, the Bible speaks nothing of that. The kingdom of heaven is here. This is what Jesus has been teaching over and over and over in the book of Matthew. The kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven has come to earth. Jesus brought heaven to earth. The kingdom of heaven is here. And the kingdom of God is anywhere where the king, God, is ruling. The kingdom of heaven is where the will of the king is operative, where the will of the king is active and, and moving. See, the kingdom of heaven is not some far-off place in the future. It's not just when we die, we enter into the kingdom of heaven. Listen, this is important for us. The kingdom of heaven is here now. And we're either kingdom sheep right? Living, following the shepherd, seeing the kingdom of earth just unfolding and and opening up and becoming a reality to those who are lost, or we're not a part of the kingdom. Jesus really is the king, and this changes everything. Do you believe that Jesus is the king? Do you believe that the kingdom of heaven is here on earth? Now, see, this, this changes us. This, this has completely changed my life, every area of my life. I was like worshiping as I was writing this, uh, preparing for this sermon. This has completely changed my finances, right? My finances aren't mine to control. Jesus is the king. He controls my finances. So I don't worry about them. I don't lose sleep about over them, right? I have way more than I deserve. I, I have way more that, than I planned for, this is, God is in charge of our finances. He's the king. I'm not the king. God's in charge of my marriage and my family. Thank you, God, right? I don't know why my wife is still with me. Only by the grace of God. Seriously, I, that, my marriage is in God's hand. I, I follow and obey God. I have to trust the Lord. I ruin it every time on my own. This changes for those of you who are single. It changes your singleness. There's a real purpose and calling for you in your singleness. Your singleness isn't yours to mourn, or your singleness isn't yours to just enjoy. Your singleness is God's. You will enjoy your singleness as you follow Jesus into it. This changes our self-identity. We're no longer identified 
by our gifts. We're no longer identified by our talents. We're no longer identified by our experience. We're no longer identified by our wealth. We're no longer identified by our past and the things we've done. Thank you, God. All of that has been redeemed and purchased back by Jesus Christ, the King. My whole life is not mine. It was bought with a price. And if we live in this kingdom, Jesus is the King, not me. Isn't that a beautiful reality? If the kingdom of God is here, let the king rule in his kingdom. So how do we do that? How do we go about the work of the kingdom? I'm fired up. There's so much evil in the world, right? How do we we address that? There's so much hunger. There's so many strangers. I don't, I don't know if you, how you read the news or, or, or take in the news, but listen, there are millions of strangers in the world right now, right? In our world, we call them refugees. How do we meet them and love them? How, how do we serve them and, and, and bring them into the kingdom? How do, we, how do we minister to the thirsty? How do we meet the prisoners? We've got a crisis in America, in our prisons, right? How do we even think about approaching that? How are we going to do this work of the kingdom? First of all, you don't go and just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get her done. That is not what Jesus is teaching here. The Bible does not teach that sort of service to God. Jesus did not come to earth to get a bunch of servants so that he could get his job done. Jesus came, he said, in his own words, to serve us and to meet our needs. Listen, he, he, he came to serve us so that we can be made right with God and so that we can then be set free to serve others and so that we can serve others in his strength and not our own. We will never engage Never engage the social problems of our world in any way that's going to have a kingdom impact unless we have been served first by Jesus Christ. I don't believe the world needs another prove yourself worthy religion, right? Go out and prove yourself worthy. There's plenty of that in our world. The world has enough of that. There's plenty of religion in the world. It just brings conflict and striving and competition. We don't need a religion. What we need and what the world needs is a savior, not a religious system. See, with my track record, personally, I know myself. I know I would never be good enough. I would never be disciplined enough to please God. I've sinned every single day of my life. I was a slave to my sin. I was a slave to my brokenness, wallowing in self-pity. What I needed was someone to save me, someone to pay a ransom for me. I was being held captive by a power that I could not set myself free from. It's a grammatically horrible sentence right there. I couldn't free myself from my sin. And then once I was ransomed, once I was set free, I needed real power so that I could walk in freedom right? I needed someone to walk with me in this new life. See, this is what Jesus has been offering us every week through the book of Matthew, talking about the kingdom of God. Let's go back to chapter 20. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 20. It's going to be right up here. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. 
And then he explains a little bit about what that means. Look, verse 28, he says, Just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom, to pay the ransom that none of us are able to do. See, Jesus doesn't simply save us from sin and then release us to work for him. Be like, man, now I need to like really prove myself worthy, that I was worth it, right? He doesn't simply save us and then release us to work for him. Jesus came to ransom us and to serve us in relationship with him. This is a relationship we're called to. Christ dwells within us. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians that Jesus makes his home. He creates a, a residence within us. And Christ's spirit empowers us. And because Jesus serves us so well, we are able then to serve others. Church, that is good news. That is the gospel. Remember back in chapter 20, Jesus is just focused on getting to Jerusalem, right? At the beginning of every story, it's like on his way to Jerusalem, walking to Jerusalem. You know, he was just like power walking. And one day as they're power walking to Jerusalem, uh, James and John approach him. Actually, it's their, their mom comes in and appeals to Jesus. And they're like, hey, how about a, a place of position for my boys, right? They're appealing to Jesus based on their, her son's talents, based on, you know, the relationship he has with them, based on the gifts they have their ability to get things done. See, these men have been following Jesus for three years. And here they are. They're wanting to satisfy their hearts. They have this real longing in them. As they walk with Jesus, they're not not satisfied walking with Jesus. They have this longing within them to perform for Jesus. They're not satisfied in Jesus serving them. They're saying, hey, we want position. We want to be able to, like, use our gifts in a real way, right? They totally missed the sweet spot of walking with Jesus. They missed it. After three years of walking with him, they missed the sweet spot. And the sweet spot is living our lives with Jesus from a place of having been served first by Jesus. This is the place of peace. This is a place of maturity and selflessness. The sweet spot is a place of intimacy with Jesus that leads us to serve Jesus by serving others around us. It is not a place of honor that is earned or deserved by our hard work of serving others. There's a big difference. It might sound like a little semantic thing. It is night and day. It's what separates the sheep from the goats, Jesus is saying. Jesus came for our healing, not for our promotion. Jesus came to seek and save lost things, right? Not glorify and build up strong things. King Jesus has served each of us as king. But here's the deal. Jesus serves us from a cross, right? He serves us from a tomb. Just as Jesus led his disciples to see and understand uh, the world and ministry and other people and culture, he led them to understand all of that through a very specific lens. And that, that was the lens of the cross. Jesus saw everything and taught his disciples to see everything through the cross. We should be careful to cultivate this perspective, this lens, as we look at the world around us, as we consider who are the least of these in my world. See, we, we were bought at a high price, We've been saved from sin. We've been served by our Savior. We get to abide in Christ. We get to be led by him. 
And then we get to go and serve others because we have been so wonderfully served first by Jesus. See, we've got to get this story straight or we're never going to serve Jesus with a right heart. We're always going to be conflicted in our hearts. See, the message of the gospel is not that we need to get our act together or we will die, right? It's not like, man, you you better get your act together and straighten up or you're going to die. That is not what the gospel says. The message of the gospel is that we have all sinned and that we're all already dead, right? This isn't a life or death thing. This is like a, a death or death thing. We're already dead in our sin. Therefore, our only hope is to cling to the God who raises the dead. That's the gospel. God gives us an opportunity to be born again. We get to be born out of death, out of the dead me in sin, and be born into a new me in Christ. Today, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know this king, if you don't know the shepherd, if you're not following the shepherd, if your life isn't bent in such a way that, that the trajectory of your life is to submit to and follow your, your shepherd. Listen, today is not the day of judgment. This isn't the day that our passage is talking about. God is not separating the sheep and the goats today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation for you. Today is the day of invitation to know the shepherd. Jesus is calling you to himself today. And I want to encourage you and challenge you. Cry out to God. Confess your sins to God. Acknowledge Jesus. Step out in faith and say, you know what? I believe that Jesus died on the cross so that I could have intimacy with the Father, so that I could have forgiveness of sin. Confess your sins to God today. The Bible says that he immediately forgives you of your sin and makes you as white as snow. You can leave with a real power, the power of the Holy Spirit today. If you don't know Jesus, and I'm not talking about knowing about Jesus. I knew about Jesus my whole stinking life. But my life stunk until the day in my adulthood, further into my adulthood than I like to admit, that I actually became a sheep. I knew a lot about Jesus. I went to church a lot. But there was one day where the Holy Spirit broke my heart, and I was able to offer something real to God for the first time. Man, praying that's you today. For all of you kingdom citizens, those of you that know the shepherd's voice, who are the least of these in your life today? We need to ask, who do I have access to? Who am I called to serve See, this is where Jesus' heart already is. He's, his heart is already out seeking and saving the lost. And, and today we need to be asking God, God, how, how am I to follow you out into your ministry? My heart's not there. I need to ask God to shepherd me to that place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we now put this in your hands, Lord, that you, Holy Spirit, would lead us to respond respond to truth. We pray that today would be the day of salvation, God, for, for those who don't know you, who are not being shepherded by the, the, the true shepherd who, who brings true life. We pray today would be the day of salvation. And God, for the, those of us who are, who are sheep in your kingdom, we pray, Lord, that you would show us today, show us the, uh, the least among us, show us the path 
these, these works that you've laid out in advance since the foundations of the world to walk in. God, show us those ancient footsteps to step out into today. We love you, Lord. We offer ourselves to you now in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.